previously on Returning Student. It's the first day of school, and I'm walking around downtown Chicago with hundreds of other students. Okay, it's been 30 minutes, and I've just about gotten to the corner. Every parent-teacher conference was always a mixed bag. I'd have two or three subjects that I was getting A's in, and then two or three subjects that I was basically failing. I think I confused most of my teachers through grade school. They didn't really exactly know what to do with me. I didn't know what to do with myself. You know, the first five, ten minutes of the class, I'm literally listening on my phone, kind of like holding it out in front of me like I'm doing an awkward FaceTime or something, kind of hearing the class on my AirPods. I'm honestly really embarrassed. I'm on Lakeshore Drive driving to work right now, and this is the day that I'll be officially submitting my two weeks notice. And uh, I do know that for the past three years, I've worked really hard to make this job be as much as it could be. And I've just said goodbye to that by clicking this button. It's 9 p.m. And my fiance and I are in a small shack of a restaurant on the coast of Port Jimenez in Costa Rica. Consult Canvas for the schedule. School starts next week and I just received my first syllabus on Canvas. I go into the app and I download the PDF. Oh, I think, I think here we go. I think I've got the syllabus here. It was a little bit lower in the Word document. This is the first time I've ever looked at a syllabus via PDF. I remember 20 years ago, you'd go into class on the first day and the professor would hand everyone a paper syllabus. I don't see quizzes each week. I look out over the water. The sun has just set, but the blue sky is still reflecting off the waves. Macy and I have been in this small fishing town for about a week. Well, this is just, this one's pretty vague. It just says like Monday, responses number three, moving from researcher to writer. We came to Costa Rica two weeks ago. Travel's important to Macy and she wanted to get one more trip in before I started school. For me, all of this is new. I actually have never traveled outside of the country until this point. But a couple months ago, she found some inexpensive tickets to Costa Rica, so we got me set up with a passport and scheduled the trip. Class policies? We'll fly home in a couple days, and school will start one or two days after that. Then in the second project, students will each identify a conversation that they are interested in and follow plan to research and compose a project. That sounds great. It is beautiful here, but I do feel a little out of my element. I'm not much of a traveler, even though I have nothing against it. Because of the other projects that I've had in my life, like the art gallery or podcast companies or whatever, I haven't actually traveled that much. But international travel is important to Macy, and I want to support her passions as much as she supports mine. The first week we found ourselves in a fancy Airbnb up in the mountains looking down on Costa Rica, but the second week we set ourselves up to be in a small six-room hotel in a tiny fishing village here in Port Jimenez. I'm more of a wilderness kind of guy, I guess. I really don't travel that much, but any downtime I have, I try to put myself in the middle of the woods where I can set up camp and just kind of find some peace and quiet and be in touch with nature. This fishing village is pretty rural. There's only about four blocks that actually have a paved street. And uh, I have to admit, I, <laughs> I do enjoy it here. It's very beautiful. Twice a day, a small 10-person plane flies over the bay to drop a few people off and pick a few people up. It's the same plane we'll be taking to fly out of here to go to San Jose and then, of course, to fly back to America. As peaceful as this area is, I am feeling some stress as I start to look over the syllabus. 
identify, immerse themselves in, and contribute to an intellectual conversation. Identify and evaluate a diversity of sources in library and online. I just, I'm just saying words. I don't even know what I'm talking about. I'm literally just, it's like I'm saying another language. Synthesize sources into a project that represents the complexity of perspectives involved. That's the thing when I read this stuff. It's that it's like, I can technically read the words, but none of it lands as, as stuff that's a thing. I'm not really proud of my reaction. I think I'm being a little bit of a punk, but it is how I'm feeling in the moment. Points. So you get points on things. Five, these are low points. I don't have many good memories of traditional school and... I am a little nervous about getting back into that kind of system, even if Columbia is essentially an art school. But that's okay. I'm not trying to focus in on that. I just got confused. I am looking forward to making more podcasts, however. And if any of these classes help me skill up, I, uh, I'm genuinely looking forward to that. Second day of school, and I'm on a red line train heading downtown. Wilson is next. After my very atypical first day, I'm looking forward to something a little more conventional. Today I'll be heading to my intro to radio class. It's in the communications building, which is actually a new building for me. 20 years ago, I spent most of my time in the film and video building, which is about five blocks south of the building I'm heading towards today. I'm looking forward to it. The WCRX radio station is on the first floor, and I understand they have windows right there in the lobby that you can look in and see the DJs working. My class will be up on the second floor. Sheridan is next. Doors open on the right and Sheridan. The train's a little full this morning, so I'm standing up looking out one of the large windows of the L train. I watch as buildings rush by. I look down and I see a dog park full of people and dogs flash by in a second. I like the red line. Eventually, as the red line hits downtown, it goes underground, but in this part of the track, it stays elevated about two stories up, and it gives you a really nice view of the city. I feel the train slowly sway back and forth as it changes tracks to avoid some construction. The entire north section of the red line is under construction for the next couple of years. They're doing a full replacement of the track and the structures that hold the track. It should be pretty nice by the time it's done. In fact, sometimes construction causes delays, so I actually got to the red line stop a little early today. It seems like we're moving along just fine, so I'm going to get down to campus a little early. Maybe I'll walk around a bit and explore some of the old stomping grounds. Okay, this is crazy. I um, thought I'd walk around the campus a little bit and maybe check out my old dorm building, which was over on Plymouth Court, 731 Plymouth Court, whatever. And I, I turned the corner here and the building's still here, but it's, uh, it's an apartment building now. Fit results, 731 South, 3L Living. Boy, is this trippy. 
It's just this tiny, this was, this was the dorms. This was like the place where the dorms were. And I'm taking a look here. I'm gonna look up at my actual room. It was third floor. Oh, I see it right now. I see the room that I used to have my window open and I feel like I should take a picture of it right now. But this apparently isn't Columbia anymore. I wonder if they're part of the, I think there's something called the super dorms that was built in the last 20 years where maybe it's DePaul students, Roosevelt students and Columbia students. Yeah, I'm looking into the window right now. I'm looking into the front door and it looks like I see mailboxes and there are a lot of, you know what though? There are a lot of college age people walking in and out of this building. I wonder if it's a mix. I'll have to find out. But there is, there is not a single Columbia logo on here. Maybe it's just an apartment building that like people end up renting apartments at now to go to Columbia. I can see in the windows the gym. It looks like the gym is still the gym. There's a ballet class going on down there right now. I'm gonna stop looking in there and stop being creepy. I see that the what used to be the commons, what used to be the commons where we would like eat dinner and stuff is now a gym. Fit results, okay. Oh wow, crazy. Well, there it is. I guess I'm gonna walk to class. But it is weird to be on this street again. I came by this way about 10 years ago, just I was in Chicago and just took a lap. And I think back then it was still the Columbia dorms. Right now I'm walking on a sidewalk that I used to walk on every single day. And there used to be just about a hundred feet up here. There was like a, a thrift shop where I bought a bunch of used furniture. Very cool. It's just inside a garage. And it looks like, well, the garage door is still there, but it does not look like it's a business anymore. Plymouth Court. Wow. Okay, well, there it is. I found my way to the communications building and went up to the second floor. I've never been here before, but there's clearly a big studio in the center of the floor, with a hallway looping around it. My class turns out to be in the back of this loop, in a small lecture room. Here we go. I can see a few students sitting in some of the chairs as I walk up to the little lecture room. My heart starts to race a little. Walking through this door, it's the first time I'll be walking into a classroom in 20 years. And in some ways, it feels like another one of these points of no return. Will I fit in? Will I just be some weird guy in the middle of the classroom? Will I know how to take notes? Will I feel comfortable participating in the lecture? All of these questions race through my mind in a matter of seconds as I walk through the door. This lecture room is only about five or six rows deep, so I try to play it cool and I find a seat in the third row a little bit to the left. The professor's up front clicking around on the computer getting ready for the class. He's playing some music on the speakers to lighten the mood. He's an older gentleman, well-dressed but casual. I can't quite get a read on him. In fact, I can't get a read on anybody because we all have our masks on and all I can see is a bunch of eyes darting back and forth across the room. But the professor casually chats with us as we all sit down and get comfortable. His name is David Berner. But the modern day radio is, the, the term is almost... He introduces himself, and then he goes around the class and has each of us briefly do the same. I'd say there's about 18 kids in this class, maybe 20. 
There are a lot of different energy levels coming off of each student, but in general, the atmosphere is very positive. Professor Berner starts the lecture, and I find it to be very interesting. It was stimulating. I didn't know that I would be so curious about traditional, conventional, terrestrial radio making. After the class, I walk up to Professor Berner and I kind of tell him about this returning student project that I'm doing. I ask him if he'd be comfortable meeting with me and chatting a little bit, and without hesitation, he says, oh yeah, no problem. So a couple weeks later, I set up a couple microphones in David Berner's office, and we begin to chat. I will admit I did do some David Berner Googling, and I said, so all this stuff started popping up. <laughs> it was actually scary. Pre- it was actually pretty exciting. No, it was cool. I was like, yeah. oh, Andy does this, Andy does this. Yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff. I, I just get involved with... I find that I learned this probably about 10 years ago about myself. You know, I've always... You know, when I was 18, all I wanted to do was play, you know, Led Zeppelin on the radio um, <laughs> and, and play in a rock band. And that's all I ever wanted to do. But I think what I learned over time was that I just like to tell stories and whatever that story is and what form or platform it is. It's really just about telling stories, whether it's singing a song or whether it's writing a song or it's writing a novel or if it's doing a news story on the radio or whether it's doing a talk show or a podcast. It's just all storytelling. So to me, that's that's kind of what I do. I just think of myself as a storyteller, but just jump into different platforms to do that. Yeah, that's fascinating. If I may, what was your, did you have a, a, a creative focus or anything going through high school and or college or anything like that? Oh, yeah. I yeah. was, uh, you know, I was in the. I was in the band. I was in the jazz band. I was in the marching band. I was in the drama club. I was in all that too. Yeah, <laughs> literally like all three of those things. A little bit, a little bit of a geek in that way, I guess. <laughs> but I was also um, a bit of a push the envelope uh, kind of guy. You know, long hair, hippie clothes. You know that era. So I was, uh, I was, I, I was like the good kid who looked like a bad kid. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind. Of, that was kind of what I was. Good so, kid, look like a bad kid. I like it. But my, but my, my wife still thinks that I, I tend to want to push the envelope all the time. I always want to push the edges, um, and that is part of me. But there's also a part of me that's very much just a suburban kid who's trying to do the good thing. You know. You know, if I may, uh, part of my journey here coming back to school is I'm trying to kind of reel in my push the envelope stuff and just try to play it straight for three years and get a proper, de- you know, podcast degree or radio degree or whatever it is. But that's yeah. been a whole journey for me. We can just discuss it at a later time. Yeah. Um, I I am curious as well. What um we're kind of jumping around here a little bit, but what brought you to Columbia? Um, I was burned out by the daily journalism. Mm, okay. Um, you know, I got really tired after a while of. Uh, chasing the mayor and chasing the next shooting and chasing the next fire. And, and it started to become sort of rote in a way. Um, and I got a little tired of that and I was doing other things at the time. I was, you know, still playing music a little bit and things like that. So I had my creative outlets, but I was really getting burned out by that. And then there were some format changes in the radio world and that switched me up. I went to work for a, um, one of my, hobbies is playing golf. I just like golf. It's a very mental game. And I like that part of it. And, um, I got involved with a, uh, a group out of South Africa that was putting together a website at the time. This was in the heyday of the dot coms. And I was asked to be a senior writer for them. And it was like a dream job for about 18 months. Okay. Um, you know, I, I would travel and I would write about golf and I'd write about that kind of stuff. And it was fun. Um, but they couldn't sustain the dot com. All the money went away after a while. And oh, right. Yeah. So um, 
But then I, I said, gee, what am I going to do? So I went back to school and I didn't want to go back into full-time broadcasting. It was just burned me out. So uh, I went back to school, got my education degree, master's degree in education, and said, I'm going to teach. And I always has always had been an adjunct faculty member somewhere, always had done that. Um, so it was always kind of in my nature for some reason. And um, so I just thought I'd take it on full time, but continue all these other outlets that I had. And I still do radio work. I mean, I do it all the time. I, I think so. you work. Don't you work at a station right now, I believe, yeah, right? WBVM yeah. in Chicago, a news radio station. You know, I've been doing that for a long, long time. Um, mostly anchor work, mostly news anchor work. But um, it's just, I love the craft of it. I just don't want to do it every day. I, I'm more like, I, I feel better and I feel more myself when I have my sort of toes dipped in different waters all the time. Yeah, I know, you know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Another fact I just learned about you. Did I understand your story correctly? Did you... Also, to some degree, return back to school after after a number of years. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. I was in my goodness gracious, what was it, forties? Well, I'm forty right now, 40. coming back. Yeah, okay, so you know, so I did. I went back to school, got my master's in education, and then a few years after that, I got my MFA in creative writing because I knew that if I wanted to stay within this academic world, which also drives me crazy sometimes, but <laughs> um, because academia can be just so everybody wants to put everybody on the back drives me nuts. I can get into that in another podcast sometime. Um, but, uh, you know, I knew I was going to need a more advanced degree to sustain it. And, you know, I'd always wanted to try to do more writing. So I thought that made sense to me. Went back, um, got an MFA program in creative writing. It forced me to buckle down and write a book that I wanted to write for a time. So that helped me because it was part of my thesis to, to, you know, get this book done. Um, and I had a great, great mentor, just an outstanding mentor who I've still from time to time, every few years I'll connect with. Um, he was just a superb writer. I mean, he just, you know, when I read his stuff, I just go, why am I trying? <laughs> um, but he's, uh, he's tremendous and he was very helpful to me. So, um, yeah, I did go back to school and I'm really happy I did that. I, I have to admit, I really never expected that when I was you know, 35, but later in life, I'm like, you know, I, this is good. This is really good. It kind of opened up my eyes again and made me focus a little better. It was good. I see. You know, initially for me, my, my, it, was, it was kind of my fiance's idea for me to return. I think she kind of saw she. We are definitely yin yangs of a, of a okay. force that help each other. <laughs> and uh, um, I was I was I'm very dyslexic. I wasn't very good at school. I was always I was good at the labs, but bad at the tests kind of kid and all that kind of stuff. Where I, she's, ha I have a child like that. Yeah. I've always done a child anymore. He's a man. <laughs> but. Um, you know, for me, uh, it was Macy's idea for me to come back to school and I was a little reluctant. Were you, were you nervous at all to return? Um, I don't know. That's a really good question. I don't know if I was nervous. Um, there was a part of me that was like, well, what is this going to be like? I had not been in that environment you know, on that side of it for a long time. Although the setup for my master's of education degree was a cohort program. So it was like a group of us, about nine or 12 of us that were going through the same process uh, we had all won scholarships to go back to school to teach in public schools. And if we taught in a public school that was a troubled public school, considered a quotes around a public school uh, that had trouble for whatever reason, we would get some of our tuition paid for. So I got into that program. I was accepted into that. So that made it a little bit different than your classic sort of sit in the back of a classroom with 25 students. It probably made it much more tolerable for me at that stage of my life. Uh, I got to be, you know, pretty good friends with those people because we were all going through the same kind of thing, and we were all in that 
you know, mid-career kind of process. So it was all, it was all really a good, that was a good experience in that way. Yeah. I don't know if I could have done, um, maybe a lot of what, what you're doing really. Oh? I'm not sure I could have gone back and sat in the back of a classroom of 20 students and gone through that. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I could have. It's a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah. little weird. I think if I didn't have th literally this project of making this show, which can kind of be a, a focus for me. I don't know if I'd have the same temperament, to be honest. Mm. I think I would be maybe going, quote unquote, a little, a little, you know, crazy uh, being, being around a bunch of 20 year olds, being 40. It's been a little weird in class where um, I have to hold back a lot. I do it. I, I less so with, with your class because I'm, I, I'm, I always feel very engaged with your lectures and I always appreciate them very much. But oh, in some of my good. other classes, I'll find myself trying not to ask so many questions or not to have so much input because if I'm being honest, sometimes I kind of feel like, well, this is a little unfair. I've had 20 extra years to think about this stuff. These kids are still figuring out why they even exist. Yeah. And I don't want to like yeah. dominate the class, but, but sometimes things are still quite interesting. Even. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's okay though. And I, and I, I, I appreciate that sort of mindset, but you know, I mean, if something's on your mind, I mean, not just in your situation, but anybody who's in that situation, they, they need, they need to speak up. One of the more difficult things that I deal with with students is that they don't there's a sit back, there's a passiveness yeah. that, that really is difficult to break through. And I think the pandemic actually has made it worse. I would agree with you. And uh, I have struggled with my classes over the last year and a half to get students to be more engaged. And I don't think it's that they're less interested. I think they're still interested in the subject matters, but they have learned to now be passive because of the pandemic. They're just not as engaged. And I can only, I only know so many dances to do in front of the class. <laughs> So, I, you know, it's like not, it's really hard. That's, it's really hard. And I, and I think that's, I know that's true for a lot of my colleagues. Uh, I know that's true. It's very difficult. It's just a much more passive experience now than it had been. Do you suspect that it's because everybody spent a year and a half um, staring at their computer screen on a webcam call and they, you know, after, you know, I, I, at least, so my, my, my fiance uh, works, has been working, staring at a computer screen for the last year and a half. Yeah. And I'll, I'll watch her. We share an office at home and I'll watch her in a meeting and she's nodding and nodding and nodding because you have to do something to show that you're listening. Yeah. And if you're not consciously making that choice, it is easy to dial it back 50%, even if you're still technically listening. Yeah. I do sometimes wonder if people or even some of these students um, are bringing accidentally even that lack of of interface into the room then. I don't know. Do you, I'm not I being very clear. You know what I mean? I think that's absolutely true. And I think it's also true from the instructor's point of view. I think that we can get lazy on that side too. Mm. Um, I found myself saying, Ooh, I better, I need to kick myself in the butt here a little bit um, because it's really easy to become passive. I mean, think about it for a minute. The most active, the most passive medium media mm -hmm. out there is video or television. That's how we relate, relate to it. We sit and ask it to take over us, right? We become passive. If we're just listening, like radio, radio is a lot more active medium because your mind is working as you're listening. With television or video or looking at a screen, you become less active. You, become, you just naturally become more passive. So we have created this situation, although Zoom you know, and all those other platforms may have been you know, godsends in a lot of ways, we have created now another issue, which is people have become less engaged.
well, you know, if I may, actually, I could speak to our class a little bit. That just gave me a thought. Um, you you do a lot of uh, breakouts. Maybe every other week we'll go do a breakout to work on a quick project, yeah. to yeah. write a little radio script or something like that. And I enjoy those very much. And what's, what happens that's very interesting is, is some of these other classmates that are very quiet perhaps during the lecture, when you get in a group of four, they start having all these thoughts. Like they are there, right? You know, right. it's interesting. And then and then we all come back to the lecture, and everyone kind of calms down again. Yeah, I think that's uh, well. One of the reasons I do that, and I know it, I mean, it's no secret. It's you know best practices kind of stuff. When you get students, even students who are naturally not active in a class um, for whatever reason, whether they're interested or it's just their nature or whatever, when you get people in smaller groups, it's almost as if they're forced to they're kind of kicked in the butt to yeah. be more active mm-hmm. so for me as a teacher to me that those things are absolutely imperative especially now and even on my zoom classes my online classes i do breakouts all the time in small groups because otherwise you know the 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 screen is off you know uh, or the cats on the screen and they're not and you know yeah. it just becomes they're just and, and i'm not pointing a finger at anybody i think that's just what we have become we become much more passive yeah so if i can put people in smaller groups and let them almost be forced to interact and be involved is as uncomfortable as that might be for some of them right now i have to do that I mean, can you imagine if we didn't do those kinds of things? We'd have a whole generation of people moving into the workforce or in the workforce already that are completely passive. How do you get anything done? It's funny, I I do think that even in the, in the classroom situation, oh, two things. Yep. One, I have some colleagues who go unnamed who will say, I just tell them to shut their phone off in class mm. and not use the phone and put the phone down and they don't get to use the phone. I'm like, why? Why are you doing that? That's how they live. That's how they communicate. They look up everything on their phone. They do their Canvas quizzes on the phone. Why are you telling them to turn off their phone? It's like figure out a way to use the phone in the class. Figure out a way to, you know, integrate that rather than tell them to shut it off. Yeah. That seems bass backwards to me. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but that that just it's like, why are you trying to change how they already live? Let's meet them where they live. That seems to me to make way more sense. Maybe there's a bit of I'm completely just guessing on any of this. I have no real perspective on it, but um the fact that the screen is, fa- you know, your laptop's facing you right now, my laptop's facing me. I don't have any anxiety about what you have on your screen right now. And I don't think you have any anxiety about what I have on my screen that we're like keeping something. But the the trope of the kid playing the video game in the lecture or something, maybe that's where some of that anxiety that comes be. from. That's a good point. You know, that might be. And, you know, just because someone is staring at their phone or looking at their phone while you're giving a lecture doesn't mean they're not engaged. Right. How do you know, not to say that they're not, there are some that are completely disengaged right but how do you know that student isn't looking up something that you just talked about mm-hmm. how, do, how do you know that maybe they are you, you got to give them a little bit of benefit of the doubt now there is the other side of that where students are not doing that mm-hmm. students are completely disengaged they're looking at some text from a friend or right. scrolling through instagram or whatever they're doing or tiktok or whatever and that sure that's going to happen and maybe that's the reason or the the, the 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 backing for that 
professor or instructor to say, shut off your phone, because they're assuming that all of them are disengaged. But I tend to look at it the other way. How do you know that some of them aren't even more engaged? Now, I may be naive, but how do you know that? Maybe they're not, maybe they maybe they are. Maybe they're looking at something. I and, think I think and, and you can't sit there and call them out all day long. It's just, you know, that's it's yeah, crazy. Maybe it does come down to it's a bit of a human condition. Maybe it does come down to the person will do what they will with the tools that they have. And if they if they're the kind of person that wants to um, quote unquote, play a video game during class or just check their Instagram during class. Or if there's someone who's literally Googling, Googling what's being talked about in the lecture, they're, they're the person making that choice, I suppose, in some ways. You yeah. Know? And I think that's true because I, I, I use this phrase a lot. And again, I don't claim to be the God of all education, but <laughs> I, I really do believe sometimes that you, you have to, you have to allow people to make their own choices. If you, you can't, I guess the best way to put this is you can't treat college-age students, typical college-age students, well, not you, <laughs> but but your your traditional college-age students, you can't treat them as if it's grade school. You yeah. can't treat them as if it's high school. You know, I have colleagues, again, who won't go unnamed, who want to support students to a fault. Now, I'm all for supporting students, but at some point you have to meet me halfway. There's an element of an instructor who's, dragging that student pull pulling them through and i'm sorry it's you're you're 20 now you either step up and take responsibility for what you're doing or you don't yeah i i, I can't keep helping you out you know if i may um, offer an observation as someone kind of stuck in the middle as an adult going to these classes and observing uh the professors and the students with with <laughs> almost equal distance um, I have noticed that the classes that I have where the professor um, is engaged with the class, trusts the class, and is frankly creating a conversation, those students are engaged. Yeah. You know, yeah. you'll see that. You'll I see you'll see true. them you'll see them come out of their shell a little bit. And then there's classes where the where the professor isn't so, and 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 the the students uh, I'm observing them receding or retreating a bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I think you do try. I don't I don't know who who are we to truly decide? We're just kind of positing right now. But I think yeah, you do trust the student. You uh, try to create engaging conversations, and they and they show up for it. I think. Yeah, I think you have to. I think that that's a good way to put it. You have to sort of trust that the student is going to meet you halfway. You have to almost believe that that's what's going to happen. Now, if they don't, you may remind them that you need to meet me halfway. You know, which happens, and I'll be happy to do that. But at some point, I'm not going to continually remind you to do that. I mean, I, and I don't mean to dismiss, you know, my job. That's not what I mean. It's just the job is a collaborative effort, teaching college. I truly believe that. And if you are not going to meet me, I, I can't do anything for you. I, I, said, I just had a conversation in my intro to journalism class. I said, the administration is not going to like me saying this, but I'm going to say it. It says, your degree does not matter as much as being able to come out of this class, being able to write a 300 word story much better than you did when you came in. Because when you go to get a job, they're, they're gonna look at your resume, they're gonna see that you graduated from Columbia, and then they're gonna say, what have you published? Let me look at it. And that's gonna be the thing that's most important. Not whether you got an A or a B or a C in intro to journalism. Nobody freaking cares. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares. And I see students so locked into grades sometimes. And I get it. I get it because the grades are locked to 
you know, loans, their grants, their, I get it's part yeah. of the system that we've built in this country in academia. If, if I were the God of all education, I'd have no grades. Right. Because that's, they get, I have a student in my intro to journalism class who asked me about one point. Like to try to get that extra point. Yeah. Something. I said, I said, buddy, <laughs> that's not going to matter. Right. Don't worry about that one point. Are you able to write your story better than you did yesterday? That's what I'm worried about. Don't care about the point, man. Let it go. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's so much of that anxiety. And we've we've done that. We've systematically done that to students. I think it's because it's what? Because it's 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 an easy it's the easiest way to quantify if someone's learned something because you know, maybe that's where it comes from. I actually love your perspective on this stuff. I've spent the last 30 years of my life with the same prerogative, quite frankly. And part of that was because I, I had a very strange experience going through high school where some classes I was I could just nail and get A's and then I absolutely was getting F's and D's in other classes. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I was put I was uh, I was diagnosed with ADHD, put in the assistive learning classes and a year later put in the enrichment classes. So my, I that had doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I had the emotion. The emotional journey that I had in high school was I felt like I was a genius and a moron. And I had to process all of that and figure out how I fit into the whole thing. Right. And my reaction was to basically say, this is this doesn't work. You know, I was actually a bit of a punk coming out of high school, challenging grades. I, 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 I was almost trying to work against grades and all of that. Mm-hmm. And I have to be honest, to a large degree, I've kept that mindset through my adult years and one of my my challenge and my journey through coming back to school is okay okay as an adult can i relax a little bit and try to fit into the system a little more i have to confess i've also wondered i don't want we don't have to go down this this road too much but i've also wondered like am i kind of losing my am i compromising my spirit a little bit in doing this yeah i i can understand why you would think that and i and i I, you know what you went through in high school sounds a lot like what my younger son did. Perhaps. Yeah. My older son was much more focused on the grades and the, you know, and, and, and whether he's going to get an A or B and the, that extra point that he needed. And every, every single teacher in my, my younger son's classes would say really good student in class. Uh, he makes great discussion. He has great feedback. He works with people gr- collaboratively. Well, never hands in homework and never passes a test. So did he learn something then? He probably did. He probably gained a lot, but we're measuring it by whether he got the A, B, or C in the final. Yeah. That there's something off about that to me because I'll, I'll give you a great example. I, I, at least I think it's a great example. <laughs> okay. I've been watching recently the documentary, um, the Beatles get back by Peter Jackson. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. And, and I knew a little bit of know about the Beatles. I grew up in that area a little bit. So I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm a fan and all that, but I had always known that, but I was reminded of this in the, in the, um, in the documentary, I had always known that Paul McCartney cannot read or write music. He has no clue. It's all about what he produces. He would fail every single music class that we teach at Columbia. He would fail. Think about that for a minute. So Paul McCartney's a failure? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that's true. So what are we actually measuring in classes sometimes? What are we really measuring? I hope we're not measuring memory because that's <laughs> dumb. Okay, because we have a computer in our hand now. If we want anything we want to look up, we can look up. Am 
I'm assuming you've been teaching in the radio department for the last 18 years. Yeah, right. Yeah, yes. has that has that changed for you over the years in, in any way, or is it? Do you find your strategies are pretty much the same? Oh, you mean my strategies as a teacher? Yeah, yeah. Actually, let's do that first. Uh, I I think they have. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've become. Um, you know, when I first first came, I thought I played by the book a little bit more. Mm. Um, because, you know, you're a new guy, you're trying to fit in, you're trying to do the right thing. But I think over time, I've become less and less um, about the established way of doing something. I've become less and less believing in that. And again, it, it's just my take. I'm not saying that this is the God all be all explanation or uh, the, you know, the new wave of education or anything, but this is just my experience. I think we have done a lot of students wrong by how we, um, how we teach at the higher level. I think we are stuck in many ways in the, in the same thing we've been doing since the 1960s. And I, I think that instructors, administrators, academia in general has to continually look at this differently. Now, are there best practices? Are there things that have worked for years and years and years? Yeah, there are, sure there are. But I still think we have a lot of instructors who get stuck in the old ways. Hmm. Now, at Columbia, I think it's a little bit different. I think at Columbia College, we're, we're a little more open to those kinds of new approaches or maybe trying something completely different or, or um, pushing a student in a different way. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, Columbia does a pretty good job of that. But we have our, we have our issues. We, we stick um, to like stuff that's been around a long, long time. Um, and some of it is still okay, but there's a lot of it that's not. Hmm. And, um, and, you know, what's the purpose of education? Okay, that, that, if you even had that conversation, you would have a million concepts and ideas about that. Some people say, I mean, a student might say, because I want to get a job. Right. Okay, right? Well, some of that's true. Yeah, some of that's true. Then there would be the academician who might say, well, it's about knowledge. It's about gaining knowledge and taking that knowledge with you and very highfalutin kind of thinking, right? Well, some of that's true. Okay. But neither one of those is exclusive. And there's still some who have a very strong uh, exclusivity to one end or the other end of that, that pendulum. To me, it's not about getting the job. It's about setting you up to be able to do all the things you need to do to get the job you want. You know, I really wish that I would have thought differently when I was back in my undergrad days. Oh, yeah. I wish I would have thought differently and just took knowledge for knowledge's sake a little bit. Mm. Um, you know, something that's been sobering for me is that I've come back to my, my grades were so bad when I left Columbia because I, I did, quote unquote, disrespect the, the grades, I guess you could say. I had to come back on academic probation, in fact, because mm. I guess I was like a 1.4 or something by the time I actually left uh, <laughs> junior year. I would go to classes that I wasn't in and I'd skip classes I was in. I was a total... I thought I was really mixing it up. I thought I was really proving a point. But, um, and I learned a heck of a lot and I got an awesome job out of my, like the things I literally learned sure. at Columbia. Yeah. Irreplaceable. You know what I mean? That's that's part of what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. It's, tri it's tricky. It's interesting. And so, so mm -hmm. then coming back and trying to play it a little straighter this time around, I had to come in and deal with the fact that I'm <laughs> on the edge of being kicked out if uh, if uh, if I have the same proclivities. But <laughs> Well, see, there's something there's something really beautiful about that to me, <laughs> of, of being on the edge of being kicked out. There's something that's really appealing about that to me. I don't know. Maybe I got like that Anthony Bourdain gene where I just want to <laughs> piss people off or something. Um, I, I just, I there's a part of me that believes that 
you know, taking it to the taking it to the edge of something is is a good thing. It's okay. It's okay to buck the system. It's okay. I mean, if we if we all colored between the lines, if the whole culture colored between the lines, we would not have any advancements. I agree completely. <laughs> it's just not in, in any way in mm. engineering, in, in creative world, in anything, we'd have no advancements. We need the people who push the envelope. We need those people. They're, they're important. We need the person who, you know, quit school on academic probation. <laughs> and, and we need those people. I, I really believe that if we were all straight laced and, you know, that's uh, it, it, no, I don't want that. Because it has been a little emotional for me to, to play it a little straighter. And I'm kind of doing it because I respect and love my fiance and she's coming from a certain perspective. And, and, I'm, and I'm actually l- still learning a tremendous amount. Well, a lot of nice takeaways from this conversation so far. I do find myself agreeing with a lot of what Professor Berner has to say. But it's also interesting how simply talking about some of these topics can give you new ideas on the matter. After the break, Professor Berner and I speak a little bit more about how the radio and podcast industry itself has changed over the past 20 years. We end up coming to some pretty interesting conclusions. We also dig into some of Professor Berner's other artistic passions and what struggles one might find when they try to balance their passion and their career. All of this when Returning Student returns. Hey there, podcast listeners. I am David. And I'm Kate. And together we host a podcast that you might be interested in if you like The Legend of Zelda. There are lots of awesome podcasts out there and a lot of awesome Zelda podcasts out there. (laughs) That's right, Kate. And we are another one of them. In fact, that is the name of our show, Another Zelda Podcast. And in our show in particular, we talk about some of our favorite dungeons, characters, boss battles. We do a couple top ten lists here and there. We have some deep dive episodes and we even pepper in a couple quiz episodes. We talk about our own experiences, we do some review episodes, talk about our challenges, our struggles, and our victories. That's right. If it has to do with Legend of Zelda, we talk about it. You can check out our episodes on our website, anotherzeldapodcast.com. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and a lot of the other podcast services that are out there. And you can also check out our episodes on our website, anotherzeldapodcast.com. All right, we will see you there. Okay, bye! Hey, this is TC. And this is Jim from The Studio Demands It. A bi-weekly screenwriting podcast where every episode we conceptualize and craft an entire screenplay based on the demands of one of our listeners acting as a studio. From hypothetical sequels of popular franchises. To reboots or reimaginings of films that deserve a fresh chance. To hypothetical films that simply must be brought into existence. Join the creative process over at StudioDemandsIt.com. Hope to see you there. See you. Well, <laughs> well I, I can't see us. Hope to hear them there? Hope to hear us there. Yep. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm currently sitting in a chair opposite David Berner in his office on the second floor of the communications building. Professor Berner and I have been chatting for about a half an hour. We've talked about school in general, our thoughts on quantifying education. However, we begin to let the conversation meander a little bit and we start talking about how the radio industry has changed. We start talking about what it means to even have an artistic life and to pursue a passion and to try to mix that with your career. It's always interesting when you do these long form interviews with people because after a while, everyone starts to really relax. 
And sometimes, in my opinion, that's when you can really get some of the good stuff. Anyways, I thoroughly enjoyed what Professor Berner and I spoke about in the second half of this conversation. Another thing that the, sh- that the show that I'm using the show for is to explore the very kind of almost on the nose but obvious fact that media and radio and audio entertainment is also changing very much sure. right now and over the last, I guess you could say, 10 years. Easy, yeah. Would, would, in, with, with a bit of time that we have left, would you like to kind of speak about that a little bit? Yeah, I, well, radio definitely is shifting. Radio, uh, traditional radio with the terrestrial tower and all that mm-hmm. um, will be around forever. It's not going to go away. Yeah. It's just going it, to, its influence is different now. You know, I grew, I don't want to sound like an old man saying this, but I grew up in the days where radio the influence of radio was very strong. Mm-hmm. You would wait to hear the, you know, the new Beatles album or Rolling Stones album because that was the only place you could ever hear it, right? So it had it had a very very strong influence. It had very much it had an influence on the culture, uh, influence on economy. It 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 did. It just doesn't have that anymore. Mm-hmm. There are a lot more platforms out there where all these things can be done: news, information, talk, you know, whatever you need, music. Um, can comes in many different platforms now, so we have choices. Nothing wrong with that, but it, but and that has lessened radio's impact, its influence. It's not going to go away. It's still there's still the most used medium, news media uh, in the world, um, above and beyond social media still, um, but its its influence is different, and the pie of revenue has shifted you know it used to be that a big percentage of that revenue would go to broadcasting well it doesn't anymore it goes to social media it goes to web it goes to whatever Hmm. um so the pie has shifted and that's freaked out some of the people in the radio industry right um because they're like wait a minute i we used to make 80 cents on a dollar now we're making 40 cents on a dollar or whatever it is right right numbers um so they freak out right uh what radio did very very poorly for a number of years when the web started to become more influential was that it kept saying, oh, well, that's just a fad. We're going to be fine. Uh, we're going to be fine. We're going to just keep doing what you're doing. Well, they didn't shift. And then they got to a point where it was like do or die. You need to make some changes or you're, you're going to go away. So they've begun to do that, the industry. And I think some parts of the industry have done a good job of that. Some of them have are late to the game mm-hmm. and maybe too late to the game. Um, And what I mean by that is to integrate other media into your radio. Uh, I tell students all the time, don't just learn to talk on the radio. Learn to edit video. Learn social media. Yeah, that that, Uh, the mixed media thing that was not mixed media, the multimedia really that was happening is part of that. I'd like to say that in in one of the themes that happen a lot in our lectures in class um, that that you speak to is how the skill set in in many ways is still largely the same, even if it moves from a live show to a podcast to other forms, that the the trade is still there, which right. I, I find that interesting. Yeah, yeah, the skill set's the same. In fact, I tell people all the time, you may have gotten a radio uh, degree from our program, which is a very unique program to get a radio degree, but the skills that you learn can be shifted into so many other different places. Um, you know, not only the the technical side of it, but the presentation side of it. Um, the the skill level of being able to to speak to um, people or to do, or to invent or, or to shape content in a way that someone wants that content those are all skills you learned in the radio program and those are not you know they're not only radio skills you know they're 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 a wider berth um, and I think our program has shifted over time to to relate that 
to do a better job at that. Uh, I don't think we are quite there yet, but where it should be. But <laughs> I don't want to get into all the support or non-support we get from the college, but that happens. Um, well, you know, let me say, let me say this. When I was, I kind of came into radio through the back door because I originally went to school here for a film degree. So I, I, I left school with film knowledge and okay. kind of found podcasting very organically out there in the world when it was essentially being invented, let's sure. just say. Right. In fact, it, it kind of happened just a couple of years after my leaving school. In fact, right. I was working in television and the concept of podcasts was super new when I when I found them. I, yeah. I Somehow I read the right blog articles or I saw the right television shows, but I learned about podcasts very early on. And at the time, I remember that it was that we did not have iPhones yet. It was still just iPods. And there were like kind of just not third party pieces of software, but it was just, uh, you know, little hacker communities were making these these pieces of software that would read code and then put the MP3 file on your iPod and your iPod would just think it was an album. It was oh, like, you know, okay. that's really how it started. Yeah. And I remember I remember seeing that as as a person still thinking about film and video and working in that medium and i immediately was like holy moly this is the future you know a mm. code that can deliver content and by the way that's the exact same stuff that that hulu and netflix and all that stuff works off of now all the streaming right. services use a similar structure and i got very excited about it once the itunes 4.8 update came out when we were starting to get iphones and it was like podcasting was recognized as a word even really because before right. that it was really niche there was yeah. maybe 10 10 pocket one of the first podcasts i ever produced was the 14th most popular podcast on itunes during that update it was one for my art gallery but there was only about 100 podcasts out there so you know what say, i mean how many were there yeah nobody was making them yet <laughs> anyways um so what happened was i i spent i spent the, la the next 15 20 years of my life doing podcasting as a hobby not recognizing that I was really, um, I was almost, I was approaching it as a film person just without the video. Mm, and sure. what, one of the things that I'm really grateful for, for what I've even been learning in my first semester here is that I think my, I was leaning into the, uh, the, the, the craft and the skill set of radio making. I didn't even realize it. You know, that's oh, what like, honestly, okay. even my class with you is teaching me that. That's I, interesting. Yeah. I went into your class on day one and I thought, okay, okay. Intro to radio. This guy seems great. And, you know, I, I was interested in the lecture right off the bat, but I thought, OK, OK, we'll just get through this and I'll get back to that good old podcasting. But um, there's not a day that goes by where we, we watch some video or we watch we get an interview with a person who's working at a radio station. And like my brain starts firing. I realize like, oh, maybe I've liked this this whole time. Maybe this is what. And yeah. I think it speaks to that. That's that kind of similar skill set a little bit. Yeah. And yeah. so I think in some ways what I'm trying to get to here is what happened was. Um, Macy and I found a quote unquote podcasting degree at Columbia through the radio um, department here. Yeah. And it was literally that word that made me go, oh, maybe I should go back to school. It wasn't until I saw that word podcasting, podcasting, because yeah. I was like, this is what I love to do. But I thought, OK, maybe I should maybe maybe school. I mean, podcast didn't even exist last time I went to Columbia. Yeah, sure. And I appreciate, if I may, that to a certain degree. Columbia has recognized this enough to where in which there are literal podcasting classes now right in line with the radio classes. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that. I yeah, we, we really believe that that's important because um, it's, you know, we can't get stuck. Um, you know, we, traditionally what academia should be is ahead of the curve of the industry. Mm. We should be ahead of it. The difficulty with that is now, as, as we referred to earlier, 15 seconds ago, something's changed. 
right? So it's really, really hard to stay ahead of the curve in a creative field like this. Um, so we, we try, but we're always like, oh, we better, we better do this, or we better do that. So I think we do at Columbia. I think we do a pretty good job of that, a pretty good job of trying to stay on top or at least in front of the industry. If I may, I think so too. Yeah, we've done the very, we did the very first, um, I guess it would have been called a podcasting ca- class as a sort of in between the semester sh- little class, mini class, if you will. Years ago, we called it emerging technologies because, you know, it was podcasting, satellite radio, all those things that were emerging at the time. Yeah. And nobody really knew what they were or what it meant or how they were going to flush out. But we wanted to stay on top of it a little bit because we knew something was going to come out of it. Right. So we, we try, we try to do that. I don't think we meet it perfectly all the time. I think it's really hard for any, um, any institution to keep a past, you know, sort of in front of the industry these days. I think it's really hard. Yeah, I know it is interesting how you can go to, well, you know, I actually, I think, I think I could say one more thing about it. One thing that I've appreciated that was true to Columbia 20 years ago, and I'm finding it to be true again here, is that most of my professors are working in the industries that they're lecturing in, that they're teaching in. Yeah. And I I hope this, I'm not putting too fine a point on it, but the fact that I can go into your class and you can literally speak about the things you did that week um, does help me feel like I'm getting an education that is on the pulse, if I may. Yeah. Well, that, that's Columbia's, you know, that's Columbia's baseline. Um, a lot of other institutions have modeled us. We've been doing this for a long time, meaning having practitioners be part of the, um, the academia here. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's, I mean, that's Columbia's model. And we've been doing that for decades. Um, now when you hear it, it sounds a little cliche because everybody's doing it. Oh yeah. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. <laughs> everybody's well, they're saying they're doing it. They're trying to do it. I had an interesting uh, exchange the other day. I won't get into it too much, but it tells you a little something about why academia is still slow to change. Um, I had a friend uh, apply for a job at a local institution, and he had been a journalist for 30 years Mm -hmm. and a well-known journalist. If I said the name, some people might know it. And he sent in a resume to teach part-time, and he told him, I know we can't take you because you don't have a master's degree. And he said, I've been doing this for 30 years. I said my name on the street. Half of the people would know me. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean anything. Now, there's something wrong with that. Okay, so Columbia has recognized that there's something wrong with that. But I have to say, Columbia over the last few years has been much more about that degree oh, than really? ever has before. Oh, really? Yes. So... There's nothing wrong with a degree. Sure. I, think, I think a degree is sort of a hoop you've jumped through, an important hoop you've jumped through, and it does mean something. But just like I said before about whether you know it's, it's um, a grade or not a grade, there's somewhere in the middle that's right. Mm-hmm. A, lot, a lot of academia is still stuck on, well, you have a degree, meaning that you know I can teach, but I can't do. You've heard that before, right? There's still a lot of that out there. Now, at Columbia, that's that's just not the case. Almost everybody here, including adjuncts, can do the work to some extent. Some can do it better than others, but but most of us can do. Um, that's not true at most institutions of higher education. It just isn't. So Columbia's model, that is still good, although I have to say the needle has moved a little bit toward the academic side over the last 10 years. 10 years or so. See, and that's, that is interesting to me because I don't have any... Um 
I can't, uh, I, I've been absent for 20 years, you know what yeah. I mean? I didn't even, couldn't even feel it necessarily. You know, I came from my, my background, my, my youth, I came from a very, you know, classic middle of the road, blue collar town. My dad, you know, very, very, very down basic stuff. Are you guys from the Midwest? Yeah. Or? Well, we grew up in Pittsburgh, just the side of Pittsburgh. And, um, you know, I, I lived in it. I had a great, you know, home life and all that. My parents were wonderful. But, um, you know, it, we were a blue collar family. I mean, I didn't know what that meant when I was eight years old. But, you know, I know now, mm -hmm. you know, and I was the first one in my, my entire family to ever go to college. So to me, I was like, this is brand new. And nobody knew what to say to me. Like, well, when you go to college, you should do this, yeah. right? I was making it up as I went along. So for me, a lot of my true education, quotes around it, came after college. You know, the experience of living away from home and all those kind of things are good. And I think those were all, you know, um, life affirming, life changing in a lot of ways. But, you know, my real education didn't come until I started to really you know, maybe my thirties or into my forties, yeah. I started to say, Oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what I am. Oh, this is interesting. My, my whole reference to the world and creative life became different. You know, when I was growing up, I it just got through school, played the guitar, you know, hope maybe a song that I played, some girl would look at me twice. You know, I mean, that it's all I cared about. I didn't care. I didn't know what else to know. Mm -hmm. I, you know, it's the world I lived in. Right. Um, that's all there was. And but when I said I was going to college, you know, everybody in my family thought I was crazy. Huh. And my mother was the one who said, you're going to college. So I just assumed, oh, okay, I'm going to college, right? I never would have thought about it. I never would have because nobody else in my family ever did. And this is the this is coming out of high school. It's coming out of high school. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So my, my mother just said, you're going to college. So my point is, I don't think I really started to realize that I had all this stuff that I wanted to say in whatever way it was going to come out until I was in my 30s or 40s. Yeah. I mean, I played in a band and wrote some songs and we, you know, played in, around, you know, town and stuff like that for a while. We were nothing special, but it did open my mind up to storytelling a little bit more than what I had been doing. So that was, it was always there. Is that when you started writing a bit more? Yeah, I started writing a bit more, but when I started to really write was when I went through my um, master's of education program, because I'd come home from the school that I was teaching in the public school and I would tell my my sons the story of that day, which was very unlike what their world was like, because I was teaching a quote unquote troubled school. And when I would tell them some of the things that I had experienced, they were like, my, my older son said, Dad, are you writing this down? And I felt like a fool because I wasn't, and I was trained as a journalist, okay? Oh, wow. So I started to backtrack and said, you know, maybe I ought to be writing all this down. So I just kept notes and that became my first book you know, that experience. Um, it happened to be a very personal book because it was also the same time I was going through a divorce. My father was dying um, and I was changing careers and facing these students whose worlds were either dangerous, turned upside down, poverty, whatever they were. All this was going on at the same time. Mm. Um, so it was a year of that. Um, and I didn't, I didn't know that it could be a book. I didn't have any idea. In fact, I saw so, but I I said, well, it was all, almost cathartic to write it all down in a way, 
when I look back at it. At the time, I didn't think of it like that. But um, when I look back at it, 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 it helped me understand what, uh, you know, what stories could be more because be, before that, they were just concepts to me because I was just a blue collar kid from the suburbs. You know, I, I was like, what do you mean storyteller? What is that supposed to mean? You know, my, my cousins were going to work in a steel mill. <laughs> you know, they storytelling. What are you weird? Yeah. You yeah. Know, they thought I was crazy. Yeah. You know, um, so. I don't think I really learned what that meant or what it was inside me that was all about that until I was older. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it took me decades to figure that out because I had no, I had no mentors. You know, my dad was great. My dad was a musician. He could play pretty well. He was okay. Um, my mother loved to read. So I had all these nice creative world around me in a little way, but they were basically blue collar, you know, families, you know, they just work, get your job done. Go to church on Sunday, watch the football game, get up and do it again. You know, yeah, that's yeah. yes, I uh, I can relate to that very much. Wow, that's interesting. So I didn't know that there was this other world of being creative, truly, until I got older. I mean, I had I had my toes in it. Yeah, but I, you know, like I was in the drama at school, so I had my toes in it. But I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what how that. Well, how do you make this into life? How do you turn this into you know, what you are. I didn't, I thought it was just a club that I joined. You yeah. know, I didn't see it as a part of me. I think my entire twenties was me trying to even figure out how to find that, that type of lifestyle, uh, the lifestyle of trying to, to be able to express yourself and be able to create things. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was totally lost in my entire twenties. I kept trying to make it work. I tried to find a way to, to, to express, but, um, well, hopefully coming back to school, you know, you, you, for you has, sort of allowed you, you know, has given you permission to, to, to explore that more. You know, it's interesting. I actually thought that it might be que quelled a little bit coming back to school. I was worried that I'd be put into Tupperware, so to speak, that mm. I'd have to go to that these classes happen. and just do the thing and start thinking like everybody else. I don't think that's what's happening. In fact, I've, I've found myself to be, um, um, I feel like I'm being given fuel going back to school, which I appreciate. I'm very, I'm very grateful for that experience. I did not think that that's how it was But do you think down. that's only because of your age or where you are in your life? Do you think the 20-year-old is necessarily not feeling as if they're being put into a Tupperware? Oh, I, I really appreciate that question. That's a great question. I think it's definitely part of my age, but more so I think it's – I guess it's I guess it's experiences. I almost said experience because – Every three or four years for the past 20 years of my life, I, I would I would I would make a creative endeavor choice and it would work for a little while and then it wouldn't. You know, then you, you say, OK, OK, I got to bite the bullet and go get a regular job for two or three years. And then I'd work some corporate thing and then I'd go have an art gallery for three or four years. And you say, this is the time I'll I can make it where, you know, and then in, in the last 20 years, it's just been a pendulum for me of making these choices back and forth of a creative endeavor and something one for me, one for them kind of thing, as the filmmakers say. And but that's I, okay though. I'm, I was okay with it. In yeah. fact, in fact, I was okay doing that for the rest of my life. There was a version six months ago, I guess eight nine months ago now, where I thought, yeah, I'll keep on podcasting, and I'll just do that in the evenings. Every evening, it'll be the thing that feeds me. It'll be the thing. I mean, feeds me emotionally. Right. <laughs> and then the yeah, job during like the day. My will be, wife always says, if it, if it feeds your soul, you got to keep doing it. Yeah. No matter how you know, no matter how that looks to the other side of the world. Because everybody else in the in in America in our capitalistic system is like, well, are you making money? Right. That's the second question, right? Well, the reality is bullshit on that mm -hmm. because 
because if it feeds your soul, that's you know worth a lot more than the money. And then the trick me. is finding something in the middle because I've certainly had times in my life where I was literally eating a bag of potatoes for a week because I was you know the financial uh, payoffs just weren't there for some kind of creative endeavor. Mm. And then there were times where I was doing a job that didn't feed my soul at all, but you know I was paying my rent, you know. And so finding something in the middle really is the trick. And I did I didn't I f- within the last five years. I guess what I'm trying to say is, because you asked me, um, is it the 20-year-old or the 40-year-old who who might be able to um, find fulfillment in going back to school, essentially, if I may? Right. You, you said it slightly differently, but I think I'm, I'm getting the gist. And I, I think it's a little sad to say, but I have to admit that I think those years where I was doing the jobs that didn't feed my soul, and I'd have to have my laptop out at the meeting that was boring in the corporate office, and, and having stints of that. Um, as as frustrating as those experiences were when I was in my 30s and 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 even 20s to some degree, I feel like it maybe taught me some patience. I, I don't know. It's very strange. Yeah, okay. Yeah, sure. So my tolerance now for um, – so let me put it this way. Uh, the paperwork to simply come back to school was more than my brain was ready to handle. It was – it was <laughs> – it, it. it was a hard no. And and if it wasn't for my my fiance who um, is very skilled with 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 navigating those kinds of things, it wouldn't have happened. Mm. And so, I'm a, I feel I don't know I don't know if I could have done it on my own. I don't think I know for a fact that that six seven months ago when we were just picking my schedule, just picking the classes, I think I still was a little bit of a punk. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I like that. I don't even know if I need to do this. I have to admit, I think I still had a lot of that in me. Yeah, that's okay, though. That's okay. Because, um, I mean, I, you know, I'm a big believer in continually questioning, you know, what you're doing or what you're thinking or where you are or all those kinds of things. But, um, you know, sometimes not all of us have the opportunity or are blessed enough or talented enough to make a living out of being one thing creatively. You know, there's a very small percentage of us that can do that. Um, I mean, there are great novelists out there that people know their names that are also teaching because that novel that they sold or those two or three still isn't enough money to make them live a life. Okay. And I can name names that everybody knows that that's true. Yeah. Right. Um, so there is a there is a little bit of a straddling that has to go on for most of us, you know. Go go take care of the bills, but don't don't give up your soul, um, you know that thing that feeds your soul. Right. Don't don't give that up. Just find a way to work that into your life. It doesn't have to be your main job, but it can be. It still can be part of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I get really upset. Because in America, they don't do this in any other country but America. They'll say, the first thing they do when they meet somebody, when you and I first meet, you know, we're at a party, we're at a cocktail, and I've got, you know, a whiskey sour uh-huh. to make it sound like an old man. I would have a vodka uh, rocks. Okay. <laughs> well, I wouldn't have a whiskey sour. I'd probably have a Manhattan. But, um, but <laughs> if I'm standing choice. there, I'm standing there with it, and you're standing there, and we'll say, hi, David, how are you? Nice to meet you, David. So what do you do? Right. Isn't that the question we first ask? Yes. Right? And it's not like... I could say, well, you know, I write novels or I do a podcast, but that's really not what they're asking. Right. They're asking you, what do you do to make money and sustain the lifestyle that you have? Right. Yes. That's a very American question. You go to France, you go to Spain, you go to even England. They don't ask you that question. That's very American. Like that is our identity. What we get up and do from nine to five. There's something 
messed up about that to me. That's how we identify people. They say, so do you know John? Oh, yeah, John. You mean the insurance agent? Yeah. That, right away. Not, oh, the guy that does a really cool Christmas decoration. <laughs> you, don't, you don't say it that way. You say, oh, the insurance agent, right? That's mostly how we identify people, how they make their money. I think those seeds go back to grades in grade school. I mean, I really think it's like this, <laughs> the qu- literal quantifiable numbers and that is the value and that is the success. I think there's something I think there are some connections there. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's we kind of went in full circle almost. Yeah, um I think that's kind of true, but but that question, I know I have a, a, a you know, a colleague, a, a former mentor who is an expat lives in Denmark. They would never ask you that question. What do you do for a living? Mm-hmm. They don't that's not that's not important. <laughs> That's a very American question. We we have a very different sensitivity to that. So your sons are what in their twenties, almost thirties. So it's been a while. It's been a couple. Yeah, it's been a while. Oh, so my, that was so you had children before teaching. I'm, I'm putting the timeline together. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, wow. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, I had children before teaching. I see. Yeah. Holy cow, Dave! We've collected. Pardon me. <laughs> <laughs> we collected a lot of stuff here. This is amazing. Thank yeah, you so much. Like There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff. But I, I, you know, I, you know, and and I continue to go back to what you're talking about creatively. I continue to try to. St- put my toes in water. I have a, a good friend who's a musician, much better musician than I am. He has a recording studio in his basement. He goes, I've written some songs over the years. I I, I only do it for my own benefit. I, it's for me. I don't really care if mm-hmm. it gets out in the world. Um, but he heard some of them and he goes, we need to record those. We need to layer them. We need to overdub. We need to do stuff. And I'm like, oh, I can do that. Let's do that. So here I am at 65 years old going into a freaking studio playing, you know, music that I've written and overdubbing it. You know, that's something I wanted to do when I was 20. Oh, isn't that funny? I yeah. mean, not, not funny in isn't a hot But isn't that... It comes around there. Yeah, so I said that to the other day. I'm like, oh my God, this is like what I dreamed about when I was 20. And here I am 65. You know, the technology to be able to do that now is a lot, you know, better and simpler and more efficient. You know, you don't need to go to a studio somewhere to do that. That's a good point. So that part of it has become easier. Um, and this guy's a really good musician, and he's he's reminding me to practice with a metronome, you know, and things, <laughs> things like that. I'm like, God, I haven't used a metronome since piano lessons when I was, you know, 10. Um, so um, as long as I continue to move forward creatively, even, even in education, and I would say that to you, any student, don't settle. Keep learning creativity keep moving your creativity needle push it push it push it push it push it because it you know for me it's kept me young here i am 65 going into a rock and roll studio i love it you know i'm like what yeah you know that makes no sense i mean if i'd have said that when i was 40 it's like that's not gonna happen um so i i have you next semester I think we've we've talked about this a little oh, bit off Oh God, mic. David! <laughs> <laughs> I think what was it? I don't think it's writing for radio. I might have you for that next year. Um, I think it's writing for radio. I'm teaching next year, but I'm also teaching storytelling and documentary. Storytelling. I've got. I have you yeah. for storytelling next semester. If I may, quite frankly, I look forward to it. I, I yeah, really, I've really great. enjoyed the class so far. They're great. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to it too. I love I love that. It's one of my one of my my 
most fun classes. Oh yeah? yeah. Will we record actual audio in that class? Yeah, yeah. Oh great. All yeah, right. Yeah, you you re- you 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 write, then you narrate, you figure out a way to soundscape it, you know? Oh, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. That's so what I'm what I'm trying to get people to do is to learn how to use the spoken word in a store in storytelling for audio only. That's what I, so it's a, sort of like little like Iraglass says this. They're little movies for the head. That's what you're doing. You're creating a little movie in that person's head. You know, even for this side project, this returning student project that I'm doing right now, I'm not actually writing my narration or anything until next semester. I hope some of the skills I pick up in this class will certainly help me with that. Yeah, I might. Um, you know, it's, the soundscaping is always interesting because, well, obviously, you know software, so it's not something you need to worry about. But um, a lot of students, like, they'll know software, but they don't know the aesthetic. Like, where does the music actually come in? Oh. It's like, it. it you know, it's like scoring a movie. Yes. It's like it's you want that right there, not there. Right. You want it right there. OK, it's like that. And that's a really hard thing to for them to grasp. Hmm. I have some students who picked it up, but that's a tough one. They're always like, well, you said to do it at the end of the sentence. Like, yeah, but not at the end of the <laughs> sentence. Like it means you need to like find that spot where that soft moment. And then you need to create reflective moments. Give the listener time to catch up with what you just said. Don't move on quickly. Give them a second. If you just said, I shot my mother, <laughs> don't just jump into the next sentence. You need you need some reflective moment there for the audience to say, what? You know, they're not understanding that. That's an aesthetic that, that I find doesn't come naturally to most people. Hmm. I hope, if I may speak personally, I hope some of my film uh, instincts will come in. That'll help you. I've certainly done music for small, short films and all that kind of stuff. That's and all that. absolutely going to be crucial help for you. I'm genuinely looking forward to this. Yeah, that will be very helpful. Well, um, th- thank you. We went over time today. Thank you so much for, for, for giving me your it time. It was fun. Uh, it was fun for me as well. Yeah. I really, truly appreciate it. And I, I think... Um, if all goes well, we'll be speaking again in the spring or something, and we um, explore even more themes and concepts and all of that. I will be here in some shape or form. I love it. Uh, we'll be chatting again in, in a couple months, and I really appreciate that. And David, thank you so much. I, uh, I, I've, I've enjoyed our time together today, and I, I'm, I hope I'm not sucking up, but I've also enjoyed that it's been a highlight for me being in your class. It's- That's very nice of you to say. I, I don't take those comments lightly. Um, it means it means a lot to me, but it also it's it, more important that it means something to you. So. It's, it's one of the it's one of the classes that I go home and then I I I brain dump on my fiance for an hour of ideas and then oh and then this and then we saw this and then I think about this and we could try this and I think I might try this. Tell and- her I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> will do. Will do. All right. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> My name is David Berner. I have been teaching at Columbia now for, I think it's 18 years. I never keep track of this kind of stuff. My background is in radio mostly. Uh, I'm a musician. I have written books. I've written novels. I've written nonfiction books. Without elevating my nature, I'm, I'm a little bit of a renaissance man. I like to have a little bit of a lot going on. I'd like to thank David Berner again for his time. He was a great interview and it was a really fun conversation. In fact, we actually talked on mic for about another 30 minutes and I just kind of had to trim the whole thing down. I think I like that point he made about how a degree is kind of a hoop you have to jump through. It's interesting with school and grades and um, art because how do you quantify something that can't be measured? 
but you still have to somehow put something in a record on a piece of paper to prove that the, that the thing has happened. I get it, and I'll jump through as many hoops as I need to jump through over the next three years. I really appreciated his point about needing to pursue your passions. And he got me really excited about radio storytelling next semester. I, I can't wait. I wonder what we're going to do. So I have many conversations in front of me. Right now, I think we brought some interesting points to the table here. In the next episode, you'll learn how Macy and I got everything set up for coming back to school. I'll talk a little bit more about how we met and what led to this choice. And then I'll speak with a friend of mine whose opinion I hold very dear. All right, everybody. I'm David. I'm a returning student. I hope you have a good one and we'll see you next week. Next time on Returning Student. There's a certain amount of fear. Uh, maybe that's a, too strong of a word. Whenever you have a hobby that you enjoy doing, like writing scripts, you know, and then understanding that if I start putting money into getting better at this, yeah. you're going to want some financial payoff to a certain degree. I want to explore something here. Um, and I don't know where it's going to go. Times have changed from what they used to teach to what is relevant now, I guess. So we were still using clips, we were using DV tapes. And now, like, like I don't know, because it's been so long since I've been there, I can't go into a television studio and know what's going on because the technology is so insanely different now. Like, I would have to retake a bunch of classes. Returning Student is a production of 6.5 Media. You can find the show notes for this episode on our website, returningstudent.com. The show's hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, David Geisler. Links to the music used in this episode can be found in our show notes as well as on our website. If you liked the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends. I'm going to be doing this for a couple years, so let's find out together how all this is going to go. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Returning Student. That's student spelled S-T-D-T. All right, I'm David Geisler, and I'll see you on the next episode of Returning Student. Thank you.